0: This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the National Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering four conversations from Season 3, Episode 30, our preview episode for the International Liver Congress 2022. This conversation included discussion of one poster and one presentation from the meeting and a sidebar conversation. The poster was Friday 100, titled Shear Wave Elastography, Transient Elastography, and Enhanced Liver Fibrosis Test Use in Assessment of NAFLD in Real World Practices, and came from Zobair Yonnesi and his group in the U.S. Louise discussed this paper briefly to note that in a fairly large real-world population, you could use Fib4 derived from electronic medical records, plus shear wave elastography, or VCTE, to provide enough data for first-line assessment of high-risk populations, and that you could do that without needing additional blood work, as long as you have the Fib4 elements in place. The other paper, which was discussed in greater detail, was OS044, titled NAFLD patients have worse health-related quality of life compared to the general population, irrespective of their fibrosis stage. Results from a prospective multi multicenter UK study. I selected this presentation, and the title pretty much makes the point. Quality of life is worse for NAFLD patients than it is for non-NAFLD patients, scores worse for cirrhosis patients than it does for pre-cirrhotic NAFLD patients, but within the NAFLD community, going just from basic fatty liver disease up through the stages of cirrhosis until we get to F4, there are not significant differences in quality of life. It continues, I felt this study was important for two reasons. Number one, it attested to the logic of Global Liver Institute's Stop Nash now slogan for International Nash Day. And number two, it strengthens the case for making quality of life an endpoint in clinical trials. Jorn commented on the rigor of this design and and speculates on the degree to which diabetes might have been the reason for some of these findings. He also noted, however, that there's real value to including quality of life as a clinical trial endpoint and that this paper seems to validate that assessment. Stephen closed the conversation by focusing on the importance of physicians checking patients' quality of life as part of their screening and regular visits, hard as it might be to find the time to perform that task. These conversations go into depth on some of the most intriguing issues today around patient screening, classification, and treatment. Some have conclusions that will change stakeholders' perspectives about NAFLD and Nash. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group.
1: Jarn Schottenberg. You know, my, my take on of this is, and Stephen, comes from the drug development aspect, of course, and, you know, how, how should these patients be involved in trial? How severely are they? How advanced are they? I think what the abstract will tell us in a diabetes population, how it's more like a prevalence. How often can we look at a KPA above 12.1? And the answer is 3%. Now, we'll see data emerging, um, what that means. What does that mean for a patient if his KPA is above 12.1? It doesn't mean he's cirrhotic necessarily, but we'll learn about the outcome. What does that mean five years down the road? uh, are they getting more Problems is the is this the highest risk category we have to focus on in clinical care the diabetologists care or something like this I agree with Stephen comment that there is positive predictive value and we've discussed this uh, a lot I, I wouldn't call it cirrhosis but it informs us on, on on the size of the problem I guess in the diabetes population on, on how often we're going to see uh, twelve KPA and above I guess that's my that's my take on that data set
2: Louise Campbell absolutely thinking back to what Roger was saying there's a little bit of a theme through what I can. See with the posters and the presentations. It's about real world data. And it's about well, how do these scars conform with each other's? Because one of the other ones I've looked at is the shear wave elastography, transient elastography, enhanced liver fibrosis used in assessment of NAFLD in the real world practices. So how well do they do? And I think it's Elena Yannoussi is presenting this one. And that was basically aiming to the risk stratification of patients using the non-invasive tests can be challenging, which is what we know. And how was that going to be looked at throughout those populations? So they did a comparison in a type 2 diabetic population with hyperlipidemia, using FIB-4, FIB-4 score of more than 1.45. They chose. So they then went to hepatology for elastography by FibroScan, shear wave by Acuson. And what they found was they they looked at a big population. They looked at 13,953 and got it down to just over 4,000 met the criteria for a second screening round with the Fit 4 of over the 1.46. So, what they ultimately concluded was that high risk NASH populations can be identified applying the simple algorithms and using economic health records as a point of source so that we don't have to just bring patients in or look at their bloods by looking at their electronic records, which is where they got started off with their population, that we can use the, the shear waves, the transient elastographies, the Fib4s, and they work relatively well in a real world practice. Again, it's about how do we. Put this out and implement it, and do they correlate with each other well enough to be used? So, again, a study that looks to use those non invasive rather than a biopsy proven population. You
0: know, this is slightly tangential. Steve and I had a conversation maybe four or six weeks ago, not on this podcast about the level of drug discovery being presented at this meeting being relatively low to what people had become accustomed to in recent years. One of the reasons for that, I think, being in the aftermath of Intercept and the pandemic, all the drug trials slowed down, right? And in the aftermath of the pandemic, certain other kinds of research weren't easy to do immediately either. So it's not surprising that you'd see a larger number of these kinds of population and retrospective analyses because those were the data streams that weren't going to slow down in the pandemic. Now, I'm kind of making this up as I go along so you guys could tell me I've got it wrong, but it seems to me that that's one of the effects of the last couple of years in terms of how research has gotten done.
2: So I think it makes sense. Stephen Harrison.
3: For sure, a clinical trials slowed down. I mean, we probably are seeing an impact of that at this year's meeting. And I suspect any situation where patients had to come to clinic, sign consent, and have a procedure done, the more invasive the procedure, the fewer of them that were done. Just look at liver biopsy. I mean, You had endoscopy suites shut down, IR suites shut down, and that was probably the largest percentage of, of things that were shut down. Next would be MRIs, and then next would be things you could do as point of care, like come to the clinic, get a fiber scan, get blood strung. You know, if the patient was willing to get in the car and and there was a nurse or sub-investigator or a phlebotomist that was willing to come to work, you could put those two together probably more quickly than you could. You know, is there a scanner that's open? Is there a rad tech willing to do the scan Uh, and the patient's willing to drive and sit in the waiting room versus an interventional radiologist that's doing an invasive procedure where I can tell you in many parts of the United States, all that shut down for many, many months months on end. I mean, it's not surprising that drug development reporting would be down and and then what can we report? We, we can report and continue to enroll trials where, you know, there was less invasive things being done, and less time in the doctor's office, and patients could get in and out relatively quickly. So it's still good data. Yeah. On
1: the other hand, uh, Stephen, I'm really excited to see uh, some of the um, uh, clinical trial data going to be presented. You know, we're not allowed to discuss them today because they're embargoed. And needless to say, I think you're going to be presenting uh, a risk data, but also a dual agonist, I believe, a GLP-1 chipboard. One, very exciting uh, because there's a lot of stuff coming there. And then there's a late breaker and a cirrhotic population even. A study that I was involved in and is going to be presented by Rohit Lumba. And I think we do have the clinical trial aspects. It's not as rich as it used to be, but there is a number of concepts that are being brought forward and uh, they're all embargoed at this time.
0: Yeah, I think it'll reemerge over time, Jorn. You know, this is a lag effect of the pandemic, really. You couldn't get people to do things for a while slowed stuff up. You know, if you were collecting large mm <laughs> cohort population data, particularly if you're collecting it before 2020, then in fact, you shouldn't have been affected. So the paper I'm going to talk about, which is OS44, I believe it presents on Friday morning. Titles, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease patients have worse health related quality of life compared to the general population. And here's the kicker, irrespective of their fibrosis stage. Results from a prospective multi-center UK study. A lead author, if please forgive me if I pronounce her name too badly, is Margarita Papathiodoordi, but she works in Manolis uh Tsuchakas is, is I'm screwing up names all over the place today, please forgive, lab. Basically, what they looked at were they took 561 patients with NAFLD from different secondary care centers between 2016 and 2019, and patients completed two different quality of life questionnaires: the EQ-5D-5L, which I'm not that familiar with, and the Chronic Liver Disease Questionnaire, which I know a little bit better. And they ran these against demographics, clinical information, liver stiffness by uh, transient elastography, and/or biopsy results. Same kind of thing you're talking about. They don't talk about which, and they say history of cirrhosis, but it's not clear to in this abstract, at least, how they're defining a history of cirrhosis. With that said, they compared population to a out alcohol misuse that had completed the 5EQ, 5D, 5L as a comparator. And then in the NAFLD patients, they also did some propensity score matching according to age, sex, and body mass. What they found, not surprisingly, was that the quality of life scores were lower. The EQ, 5D, 5L index was lower in 514 NAFLD patients compared to the matched controls. And significant in a subgroup of NAFLD patients without advanced fibrosis compared to the general population. So one of the things we've been talking about is how the effect of steatosis versus fibrosis and how bad does the liver have to be for the quality of life score to be affected. And this says not all that much. Their definition of advanced fibrosis is less than F3 and a um, BCTE um, liver stiffness of less than 8 kPa, so fairly low. And basically those patients without NASH do worse than the overall population. Okay. They go on to say that patients with serotonin, score lower than the NAFLD patients we just described. However, among the NASH patients, once you get to NASH, there is no difference whether uh, you have advanced fibrosis or not on any of these measures. They talk about the index being negatively associated with type 2 diabetes, depression, osteoarthritis, not surprisingly, in the whole patient populations without cirrhosis. I think the punchline when you get to it is, first of all, that NAFLD in and of itself is a predictor of lower quality of life. And the cirrhosis then is a predictor beyond that. But Nash might not be. So. One of the things that Jorn has been talking about a significant amount recently and others before that, Manal being one of those that comes to mind, is the importance of looking at quality of life. And they were talking last week in Global Liver Day about the reason the slogan is Stop NASH Now is because if we can simply stop progression, that would help the quality of people's lives. This, I think, says yes and no, right? It says that once you get to NAFLD, you you are already going to have an impact to quality of life, which means we could be measuring against that in trials and other settings, and that that'll be true for everybody worse when patients get to cirrhosis. Again, I don't know how they define find history of cirrhosis. I don't know how many patients got biopsy as compared to simply had a VCTE, but those would be what the results suggest. I think
1: that's an important study, Roger. A couple of things that come to mind is uh, they're using two tools. So they have a liver-specific tool, which is the CLDQ, as you said, and that's capable to pick up you know, this tension of the liver capsule and some of that right upper quadrant pain, this, uh, the tiredness the liver patient has. And it has a generic tool for which you can actually compare to the general population. There's no CLDQ for the general population because they're not liver-sick. So the EQ5D you can compare to the liver to the general population, and then they fare worse. My take-home is that a lot of that comes from diabetes in this context, and I think you have to look in where these patients were recruited. Now, it's second secondary care and it's a general population so the prevalence of really advanced fibrosis isn't going to be too high I don't think they say it in the abstract we'll have to see uh, how it is on the poster but I think one reason why it's not showing up too strongly here with advanced fibrosis signal is that it's probably the prevalence is not very high in the core there's actually been some good studies in the literature also from consecutive studies showing improvement of fibrosis being correlated with uh, quality of life liver specific quality of life that is and as such I am uh, from what but we are seeing, actually, if, if you get a strong enough signal in the advanced cirrhosis group or advanced fibrosis group, you should be able to detect it. Having said that, um, I think this is a very important study because it highlights this frequently neglected uh, aspect of how a patient feels and functions. And uh, as a physician, that couldn't be more important And for the patient. I think you know it is um, in any case.
3: Where I think this is most widely applicable is in really helping to build the premise that we need to be screening for these patients because it's not just about increasing rates of mortality, but morbidity. And morbidity often is how a patient feels is often overlooked relative to progression to end organ damage, not linked To liver death or liver decompensation or cardiovascular disease. This has been borne out over and over again. Somehow, people manufacturing Drugs or studying drugs for fatty liver need to build this into the studies. And then not only that, they need to take this data and build marketing outreach campaigns to providers to say, these patients are impacted. Their quality of life is impacted. And somehow, you know, we see this presented at meetings. We see it published in the literature, but very little happens with it after that. It just kind of gets pushed to the side And we have discussions more around something that's granular and palpable, something that we can touch and say, this is impacting a concrete endpoint. And I think too often what we fail to realize is that fatty liver is a disease continuum. Fatty liver is a problem that patients live with for decades generally, and they can begin to feel less well in some regard, long before they develop liver cancer, kidney disease, diabetes, complications of diabetes, liver-related decompensating events, liver-related need for transplantation or cardiovascular disease or death. So I like it. I think we need to use this and leverage what it's telling us.
1: And now, back to Roger.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week with three episodes, a pre easel episode on Monday and same day recordings, both Friday and Saturday. Please join us for all of them. Until then, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.